Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. As the Wall Street Journal reported on July 12th, federal prisons are treating mentally ill inmates badly, according to a new audit by the Office of the Inspector General, which is part of the Justice Department. Some prisons keep mentally ill inmates in solitary confinement for at least 22 hours a day, occasionally for years. Many mentally ill inmates receive inadequate treatment or no treatment at all. The audit found that although the proportion of federal inmates with mental illness is about 19%, only 3% undergo regular treatment. The audit didn't cover for-profit prisons. The dilemma linked to incarcerating mentally ill people could worsen since the Justice Department is facing over a billion dollars in budget cuts. Last year, the Bureau of Prisons asked for 130 new mental health professionals, but the request was denied. Researchers say isolating people, especially those who are mentally ill, can have long-lasting detrimental psychological effects. On July 11th, two Democratic senators introduced the Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act. The legislation would require federal prisons to offer free sanitary napkins and tampons to women inmates, and would ban shackling them during pregnancy and placing pregnant women in solitary confinement. One point of the legislation is to make it easier for women to preserve their relationships with their children while in prison. The bill mandates that the Federal Bureau of Prisons take into consideration the location of children when choosing where to imprison a woman, and to foster policies that make it easier for inmates to communicate with their families. Those policies include longer and more frequent visiting hours, permitting physical contact during visits, and making phone calls free of charge. Women are the fastest growing segment of the incarcerated population in the U.S. As a follow-up to our Toxic in Texas episode, a listener sent us an article written by Keith Malik Washington, who writes about a civil complaint that he and other Texas prisoners filed in response to the contaminated water and deadly heat in Texas prisons. We encourage you to read his full article about this struggle at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org, which includes Washington's full statement as well as ways to contact him. My name is Jay. I've been doing minor support for Kalsani Malik Kaldun, legal name Leonard McQuay. He's a long-term black political prisoner who was originally sentenced to a 25-year sentence in 1987. He was later framed due to his politics and sentenced to a 60-year sentence for a crime he didn't commit in March 2001. He spent 20 years in solitary confinement and has endured an arduous battle with mental illness and abuse by racist guards in prison. Kalfani is an extremely strong and caring person. He has written a handbook on surviving solitary and is often speaking out against the prison plantation system. He's looking for additional support and people reaching out to him. Long-term prisoners experience ebb and flows of support, so it's really important that we stay in contact with our comrades on the inside. You can write to him at Leonard McQuay, number 874-304, Wabash Valley Correctional Facility, P.O. Box 1111, Carlisle, Indiana, zip code 47838. You can also email him through jpay.com, which is the easiest and his preferred way to communicate. He's also currently in search of support for reopening his case and winning his freedom. 
Anyone with legal or lawyer friends, please reach out to him. For more about him and his case, visit calfonicaldun.wordpress.com. This week, we finish our three-episode arc with Mark Cook. You can hear more about Mark's time on the inside and after his release in the previous two episodes of KiteLine. This week, he talks about the role that Outside Solidarity played in his release and more about the work he's done since he got out, including support for prisoners currently in struggle. I'm Mark Cook. I'm 81 years old, a great-grandfather. I don't have to go through all the other stuff. I'm retired. My last employment was working with the uh, public defenders in Seattle, representing people without funds. I was a paralegal, a criminal investigator, and general office assistant. Uh, I stay active on the streets. I help form a group called the OWLS, Organized Workers in Labor Solidarity. This is a grassroots workers. We don't allow any bosses to come to our meetings. It's been running about three years. We fund ourselves. Every time we sit down, we throw money in a pot. That was our funding. We pay for the, uh, a place at the Labor Temple in Seattle. It's $40. It used to be $40 a month. It's way up to 43 now. But anyway, we never have trouble meeting that. We, uh, with our funds, we support uh, union strikes and even non-union strikes because we want organized workers to unionize. I have helped unionize uh, the uh, uh, Associated Council for the Accused. They brought them into SEIU. Uh, I did this with pizzas and coffee. Invited them to somebody's house, kept talking to them and told, bringing their friends, and finally got them unionized. Sent to the penitentiary. I sent first to Terminal Island where I got my sentence. Then I started my routes going to the prisoners. Uh, Atlanta, where they had the multiple murders. The first is two, no, first to Leavenworth, and the warden refused to take me there. It's just too, high, too much high security there because they figured I'd organize a Panther group in the prison. So they sent me to Atlanta. In Atlanta, we had a rash of homicides in there. Uh, a lot of gangland killings. The mafia was doing most of them, and they were brutal. It, chop off the hands, legs, and heads of people after they kill them. I mean, just to make a point. <laughs> I don't know what kind of point to make. You're dead, you're dead. And so anybody who had a, an assault on a police officer or a killing in the prison, they shipped us all out. That was three buses of prisoners shipped throughout the United States. And finally they made the warden in Atlanta take me. So I must pretty much uh, did the route. They, they never let me stay at a prison long. They always moved me. I moved about 17 times. I met most all of the political prisoners, federal pri- pri- there were, and a lot of the uh, espionage prisoners too. I learned a lot of tricks from those guys. Okay, so now Ed Mead. John Sherman. John Sherman escaped again from Lompoc. They busted him out down there, but he, they caught him. And okay, he got out. Ed got out. Rita and Therese and I think three other women. They all got out. I was the last person left in. The black guy. Of course, we understood that before it was going to happen. Had great support from everybody all this time. In fact, the, the woman who uh, helped me with the convention thing. She took my son in custody. He was supposed to go to a guy who became an informant against me, but when he became an informant, I had to find somebody else. She said, I'll take care of him. So from about age uh, 12 till he was around 18 years old, she took care of him. Uh, And she also made this huge weaving. 
people have pictures of it, and it hung in the uh, uh, doorway of the Seattle Community College. And on it, if you look sideways, it says "Free MC uh, in the Weaving," and, and nobody knew that for for all those years. And when I got out, I went by, and I it was still hanging up there. So there was some reporter did a an uh, article on me, and he took a picture of that, and I told him the story about it. And shortly after that, they took it down. <laughs> But not only was she, she had passed away, but she had uh, received fifteen hundred dollars from the state for that weaving, and that was pretty famous weaving, weaving for a long time. So, like I say, I got out after about twenty-four years. Did about six years in. Uh, the state custody and they figured I'd done more than enough and, and all the white folks were out. <laughs> so they said, better, better let him out before I had some trouble. Uh, while I was there, I did some organizing. Uh, the, uh, mostly the anarchists, but there's a large group on the st streets in Seattle, huge, who uh, marched for me, so to speak, me and Mumia. They raised over $8,000. And this was a, about no more than that because they paid 1500 to send a private psychiatrist in to, to blah, blah me out of the prison, you know. I didn't figure I was going anywhere. I didn't know they was raising all that money or I would have told them to stop because I wasn't going nowhere. I had two life sentences to do. But Ed Mead was heading it. He's uh, out there and he got them to do these little street uh, theaters where they burn this coffin and set it on fire in the middle of the street and they all dashed. And, they had the, the old-fashioned cell phones at the time with little antennas sticking out, so they used them like walkie-talkies as monitor the police, where the police were, and all that. It, it's pretty cool. Uh, Bo Brown, she came up to visit me. She's one of the brigade members in prison, and a lot of the uh, uh, anarchists and people like that came up to visit me. The majority of the people were anarchists in, in this demonstration. So anyways, when I got out, they took me to this highfalutin cafe and got me a meal handed me $8,000. Ed gave me a car, my sister gave me a place to stay, and then Ed and his wife got me a job, and that was the end of the story. Isn't that enough? They paroled me off of my parole violation sentences, and they said, forget about all that other oh. stuff. Yeah, uh, so I don't know, I did about maybe, see, I did maybe six years on parole violation, forget about everything else. But they tried to get me to go to parole board several times, I refused to go. About three years in a, a row, I just refused to go. I said, I, you know, I'm not going up there to hear that bull. You might have seen Shawshank redemption and the way he did. And that's a fact, a lot of prisoners do that. You get tired of your, you do, do one thing and you want to do, you do something else and maybe we'll let you out. I said, well, that's not me. So finally I went before him. One guy had got a t-shirt and they had these, Free Mark Cook t-shirts on the street and his wife had brought him up a t-shirt and he wore the t-shirt we could wear our own clothes on the yard at that time and the pro board saw it and he said well we want to see him and his wife happened to be attorney and she gave him a good spiel on you know I'd never had an infraction in the 24 years I'd been in prison anywhere I had one for walking in the wrong direction around a grass square I was supposed to walk clockwise and I walked counterclockwise and call the guard stupid. Well, they didn't give me a fraction for walking the yard. They gave me an infraction for calling their guard stupid. And it's a, they gave me probation on that. It's the only infraction I had in all that time. 
I wasn't. I was a model prisoner from what they could see, but I helped with a lot of the escapes. I crawled through some of the tunnels that were later busted, you know, by bringing them big spoons out of the kitchen, big serving spoons to dig with. Did whatever I could. Stayed active. It was real close friends with uh, Jan Laman, Peltier, Sundiata, Matula Shakur. Uh, oh, I go down down the list. And of course, my comrades, Janine Bertram. Janine Bertram went by the code name Jory, and she wrote this poem. It's a really good poem, it's long. But sometimes I go out and do these speaking tours at various places, you know, colleges, and even in Hong Kong, I went over there. And they had read this poem. So when I sit in, they said, hold it, you know. And they say this, I'm cuddly, I'm cozy, I'm armed, and I'm dangerous, and I'm burned the prison to the ground. That was part of her poem. And so that became pretty famous. Most people just know that part of it. Uh, so I, we wrote poetry back and forth while we were in prison. When I got out, I gathered up some poem. So I got some poems about that thick, uh, all handwritten. And this one guy said he'd like to you know, uh, type that poem, poetry up for me. And I said, I had pictures of all these people. I saved pictures of every one of them. And he took it in. He said, whenever you're ready, he'd do it. Uh, but it was mostly poetry to herself, you know. I can't even, that's about the only one I really remember of all that poetry. When I got my sentence, I got 350-year terms. I don't know if I told you this already. I had no idea what the judge was saying. I was just looking, it was a nice day. I was looking out the window and, you know, just, it was a long trial, about two-week trials, you know. And when I read the transcript later on, I, I got 350-year terms on top of, of course, uh, oh, that was, uh, that was earlier, uh, before I became a part of the brigade member. Later on, when he gave me the two, two lives, I remember that, you know, but it still didn't make no sense. I have about 610 years to do anyways, plus the uh, 30 that I had to do for the uh, feds, which is... 53 years, 253 years, plus two life terms, and a 10 on top of that, okay. But anyways, I never had to do that. And after I got out, uh, they gave me the three-year gold certificate. It was mandatory under the old law, which wiped out all of my senses. I had the right to vote, supposedly to do anything anybody else does except own a gun. Well, I never had the right to own a gun before. If I want a gun, I just tell them no. Up next, Mark discusses the support he's done for prisoners during their struggles and the challenges they face during their mass hunger strikes in the California prison system and other prisons around the country. I worked with the, the, uh, the Rock newsletter started by prisoners in California. Uh, it was paid for by them with stamps, stamps and, and cash. The government gives every prisoner in California some stamps to communicate with their family or friends or whatever. And a lot of them didn't have family or friends, or they, a lot of them decided this, decided this rock newsletter was more important. So they would send us stamps. We'd get boxes and rolls of stamps. Their relatives would send us checks to pay for the, this, the paper and the printing, pre the, uh, the copier, uh, the, the printer stick that used to get in the copier, all of that. They paid for everything in order to do the newsletter. All the articles put in there was mostly by them, except we had one editorial, me and Ed, Ed Mead had one editorial we'd stick in. Their aim was to break the syndrome of uh, mandatory solitary confinement for anybody belonging or even associated with a gang member. Some of them had been in, been in, the year for, in solitary for 30, 20 years, 
and to them that was a straw that broke the camel's back. They've never seen their relatives. Relatives have never seen pictures of them because they're not allowed. No contact visits. And solitary confinement has, uh, what do you call it, uh, morphed off into uh, segregated cells. In other words, sometimes it's two and three people locked up together for 20 and 30 years. And they, they'll mix the groups up where there might be white supremacists and black guerrilla army. They put them in the same cell. However, down there, it's, they've been so long that they've got along together and they said, we got to get out. And so they decided to get the other prisoners together to do a food strike. The ones in solitary confinement got, we had, by sending us a newsletter, we could send it to any other prisoner in any other prison. And they have this habit of moving prisoners a lot when they moved they moved the rock newsletter to the next prison. So eventually all the prisoners were getting this newsletter. Now the first strike, I believe, was only with people in solitary or segregated units. And they broke off the strike because they thought they were getting concessions from the administration and they were double-crossed. So this time, the, these were shot callers in the, in the hole. They're the ones who told the gangs what to do upstairs, everything, uh, in the main population. So they sent the news out that there was going to be a general strike and everybody had to join the strike. They put out a, uh, a memorandum kind of thing, a cessation of, of all aggression between gangs and races. You've probably seen that thing. It was, it was really successful, not only in the prison, but in the jails and it started spreading to the streets at that time. It resulted in their strike which had over 30,000 prisoners uh, went on hunger strike. And that morphed off into people in other states wanting to do the same thing. We got letters from, in Washington state, from kids in Green Hill who went on hunger strike. They, they sent us their little uh, memorandum of demands. Uh, in the detention center, we were doing the detention center in Seattle, and they heard about it through the Mexican prisoners and families that how the hunger strike worked for them. So detention centers started up here. Then it morphed off into detention centers in Georgia and Florida. And I guess it's still spreading. That's one of their tools now. And I did a, a lot of noise demonstrations and demonstrations in front of detention center. It stayed active. I'm fighting against the priest brutality in Seattle with the ex-prisoner trying to support his brother who was killed by the police, getting great support. Um, politicians from all levels are coming to support this group. They've turned into a, a nonprofit. They're trying to change the state law. The state law says in order for a, a policeman to be acquitted, he has to show malice or good faith. And, of course, they, sh they show that every time so they can't prosecute him. The prosecutors in the state of Washington have the discretion to prosecute anybody they want, whether they win or lose. And I talked to one prosecutor, the main prosecutor, and he says, no, I can't do it because they're going to win. I said, well, we want you just prosecute one and prosecute them and lose so everybody can see what the problem is. Otherwise, we have to kind of go out with our little flyers and meetings and, you know, uh, our gentle persuasion stuff, you know. <laughs> and he said no. So they, they pushed harder. I got my nephew and niece who are kind of key to this organization, and they're both Muslims, by the way. At this stage, they're in the, before the legislature. They got legislature to, who want to get those two provisions taken out of the statute so they can't prosecute. They got the malice taken out of it, from what I heard. They're working on the other part. The county and the city are making ordinance saying that prosecutors can be prosecuted, you know. 
I also help with the uh, stopping the juvenile to the prison thing, uh, fighting against the, the new jail they want to build on there. And the new jail they want to build is massive. I mean, it, like it covering, covers a college campus. That's how big it is, the new one. The old one is half, maybe half a block long. But I know they want shooting ranges and everything down underneath. So, yeah. But I, I work with that group. I, I, there's so many groups I work with. I, I stay active and I, I still work with Ed. Ed wants to do a newsletter for the state of Washington. Under the same provisions that we put for the California prisoners, you have to pay for it. If you're interested in changing conditions there, give us some stamps. We need two stamps. One stamp to send it back to you, one stamp to, to pay for the printing and all that stuff up here. There was a, a prisoner in uh, Oregon who accidentally got hold of our newsletter and just sent us a thousand dollars says we want the newsletter down here to do. But we're just working for the California prisoners. So it's a, uh, what's called a journalism is a thing that does work, and that's something I've learned since my underground newsletter, The Bomb, then seeing how the Panther paper uh, politicized a lot of people. And then Ed Mead does, did the California Prison Focus newspaper. He did, worked on that, edited that for 14 years until he got cancer, and now he can't do it no more. But that's one of the uh, broadest read newsletters in the state of California, and it spreads to others, other counties. Uh, the Rock was formulated by a guy in solitary confinement where he had this dream, he says, where he was in this boat, big old prison galley of the Spanish time where everybody was rowing a boat, and rowing. He says, he said, I stopped rowing, and I just dropped my oar, and I stood up, and I said, Rock. Everybody else kept on rowing and rowing, and another one dropped his oar and stood up and said, Rock. And pretty soon everybody was standing up stop rowing and they said a rock. So that's where a rock got his news got his name was from this guy prisoner. And the little the story of how the title was created went around the prisons and they kinda liked it. But I liked the whole thing because it's ninety nine percent was prisoners. We were just facilitating it. I haven't stopped. I mean right now I'm working on the fiftieth anniversary of the Panther Party, working with my former uh, Panther uh, officers in Seattle. Uh, getting ready to write to uh, the Rolling Stone. It's their 50th anniversary too, and I want them to send, find some of their old reports to send to it. So we'll see what happens there. I said, you guys got to pay for it, but send them to us, yeah. Finally, we end with a brief anecdote Mark shared about being a young man in the Washington State prison system. First time I started doing hard time was in the Washington State Reformatory in Monroe, Washington. Okay, I'm a youngster, 21 years old. People got the card games going. Guy said, you want to play Pinochle? You got to get a partner. So I get a partner I d did time with, by the way, in, a, in the mental hospital, a three years in the mental hospital. He said, sure, I'll, I'll be your partner. So we're playing and we lose a couple cards of cigarettes. You know. So he goes off in the corner. I just figured we lost. And he comes to me, those guys are cheating. I said, what? Yeah, come here, I'll show you what they're doing. And he showed me what they were doing. So this one guy, name was Ambrose. Uh, I walked up to Ambrose one day not the same day, it was another day, because I strapped myself uh, with the, had a, had a knife. Uh, it's the ugliest knife I ever had in my life, or see, it's even seen in a penitentiary. It was a mattress needle about that long. You ever seen a mattress needle? Mm -hmm. it's, it's a triangle needle, triangular okay. needle. So you can go through the mattress and put the, the old orange thread that goes around it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I had that in the, the handle was a, the, the old uh, safety razors you shaved with. You could unscrew them and take the handle off. That was on the end of it. 
And so, <laughs> all the details here, just in case you go to prison. And so I said, Ambrose, you, you is cheating. You, you know you're not going to get paid. He says, I don't care what you think. You're going to pay me. And I said, Ambrose. And he says, you heard me. And I pull that thing out and I hit him. They say he had 36 wounds in him. I, I did try to kill him. But he survived. They put him on the operating table. Then they had some of these comics going around offering to pay somebody a carton of cigarettes and they throw the light switch while the surgery is going on. Nobody did it, though. <laughs> but anyways, he, he survived that. They put me in a solitary confinement, a really solitary confinement. I mean, I'm telling you. And the Judas hole, I mean, when they closed that, it was black. There was no light bulb in the cell. I don't even know how they cleaned those things. They hosed them out, I guess. But anyways, I was in solitary confinement. And they locked up a whole bunch of other guys about my age and I, in there. The story was that shortly after I did it, some of the inmates ran up to snitch on me. And other inmates seen them doing it, they ran up to snitch on their friends. They had an agreement, so it'd be so confused, they wouldn't know who to, the, right. the, this captain wouldn't know who, who did it. So I was one of the persons who went in the hole. And they never laid that on me. So I stayed in the hole probably uh, two, maybe two, two or three weeks. And they fell oh, terrible hole. Fritters, you you wouldn't believe it. Well, let me tell you about the fritters now. I, I got, I'm in the story. I might as well go a little further. They give you a half a blanket and a Bible. That's that's you, you don't get, get and, and a cup so you can drink all the water you can drink. Get out the faucet. Th that's it. They feed you two times a day. These things are called fritters. They're made of a pancake batter, meat, peas carrots, and very rancid oil. Okay, uh, there's two of them between three slices of bread. There's no butter or mayonnaise or nothing like that on it. They just slip it through the slot, and that's it. First day, I could not eat it. Second day, I was getting a little hungry, and it tasted, it tasted pretty bad. Uh, about by the fifth day, I was looking for crumbs on the floor. <laughs> yeah. but, but that's pretty much it. Uh, this one guy had caught a the water beetle, the big water beetle. And you break a leg off of one side and you tie a string to it, put him out the cell. And the beetle will just walk down to the next cell. And then you put him on the string. He's carrying a message, by the way, on the, under the string. So you, the guy would put him out and he'd go down to the next cell. So that was one of the things they did there for entertainment or whatever, right? But anyways, they finally decided to send me to Walla Walla, to prison down there. Uh, so I'm there just getting comfortable, and I don't know the rumor is out that I was the guy who did the stabbing up there. And they're pretty shaky around me. They, they give me a lot of room, a lot of respect. For a young person, they generally try to punk you out when you're young. But they figured I, somebody's going to get stabbed. You mess with this kid. And so, so I finally get, uh, got my safe self settled in there, job, a cell. But I had to have the haircut, mandatory haircuts in there. So I went down to the barber. And who's the barber? This is a couple of years later. Who's the barber? But Ambrose. And he has the clippers, and he also has a straight razor. And I had a choice of three chairs. Everybody sees, sees what's happening. And I go over, and I climb up his chair, and these guys dash out to the population of what's happening. And they're waiting up on a, they can't see. They have to look around the corner, look down on me, three chairs high, see what's happening. I'm, I'm sitting there, getting my hair cut. He says, do you want a line, razor line? I said, yeah, give me a razor line. Uh -huh. You know, they trim it down here, make it straight. You know what that's all about. And that's it. I get up, and I give him a couple packs of cigarettes. But I figured he, he, he had his chance. I, also, I figured 
this guy hasn't got guts enough to go to that. The, the gallows is right above on top of this uh, cell block we're in. And he must know that. He knows that's where he's going to go if he cuts my throat. <laughs> and so that's the end of that. Uh, just a little story. So that's about it. A special thanks to Meg and Lucy for sitting down with Mark, and to Mark for sharing his stories with us. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512, or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.